This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Hamilton, episode 42. Here we are. Who to thunk? No kidding. That's your age too, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, creative accounting wise, for sure. So, uh, at, at heart, at heart, for sure. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. So we just went through episode 41. I had a great talk with Mike Kirk and myself regarding our hunt in Northwestern BC. It was kind of, mm-hmm. like you said, funny interviewing myself, but uh, yeah. yeah, just uh, uh, we had a great trip in uh on our flying trip and uh, as you all heard uh you know we we came out of there without a sheep but um you know just the the experience we did see a lot of sheep some mature sheep uh tons of goats and just the experience it's just so it's so cathartic to get in the mountains and just that re-energize reset and um i can tell you when i come out of there i'm just fired up about conservation and and Mm -hmm. the work we're doing and putting sheep on the mountains and we got such a great wild sheep community you know there's so many fantastic people i got out and getting messages from my buddies that killed some sheep and people that seen sheep and just, yeah, it's just so, uh, such an exciting time of year. And it just feels so good to be out there, whether you're, you know, you're pulling the trigger or not. And I didn't pull the trigger as you guys heard on that last podcast. So yeah, it, it sucks. You couldn't close the gap, but Hey, it's not like you didn't see anything. You're not coming out of there with memories. Right. And that's, as we talked about, what's, what's the measure of a successful hunt. And that's all in the eyes of, uh, the, the ones on it. Right. And, if, if you say it's yeah. a success, that's all that matters, right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you know, I know, I know some of my buddies would be like, that's not a successful hunt. And, and fair enough, you know, to, to some people, it is important to them to kill a sheep, to kill a ram every year. And that's fine. Uh, uh, not judging, but for me, it was, it was more than a success. And uh, the only thing that's missing is the meat boy. If, if, you know, if there was some substitute for the meat, I'd be all over it. But uh, that's the one thing every year I look at my freeze and go, Oh man, <laughs> I wish I was a better <laughs> sheep hunter. <laughs> so, you, you just got to get uh, into bears and coyotes and all that stuff, right? They're everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, they're just, it's not the same. I have to say that, uh, you know, um, sheep meat is just so decadent for sure. Yeah, but uh, um, I always yes. said I'm a better conservationist than a hunter, for sure, right? <laughs> yeah, speaking like, of coyotes, though, there was yet again more attacks in Stanley Park. It's over 34 attacks in the last couple of weeks. Like, I, I, I don't get it. It's just that I, that I, I don't get it. That's a whole other yeah. con- conversation we can get into, and maybe we can bring in somebody that's uh, – little bit more versed on uh urban wildlife management and get into it from there but yeah so that segue was there from coyotes and totally went off on a tangent so yeah no i know it's near dear to your heart i've gotten a few texts to you over the last couple of weeks here about that it's like another one it's like oh my goodness yeah and for yeah it's that's the thing right it's uh 
people uh, people think uh, wildlife are these pretty uh, little animals on the Disney Channel, right? And um, you know, it it actually is. Uh, obviously, I don't want to see anyone get hurt or anyone injured, no. but these, you know, this interface where we have these uh, um, wildlife confrontations, um, it's a good reminder to people that. Um, you know, we've taken over, we're encroaching on their territory. And, uh, you know, it's a, a realization too, that, you know, they maybe aren't these uh, cute, cuddly little animals that Disney portrays them or, or some of our uh, anti friends uh, on the other side of the aisle portray them, right? They're, they're real animals. We're, you know, we're encroaching on their territory and people need to, to recognize that. So I think it's a, in some ways, it's a good reminder to people. Obviously, again, I don't want to see anyone get hurt, mm. but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, there, there, was a, there was a, I think it was a two-year-old bit a couple of weeks ago, and that's that's terrible. Like, you, absolutely, that that kid's going to be likely scared and scarred for life. Now, I'd, I'd be curious though. These people that have been bit, do they feel any different about wildlife management now? Are they? Mm-hmm. Were, were, what side of the fence did they sit on before, and what side do they sit on now? So, and yep. again, the other day too, there was uh, uh, somebody found in a blueberry farm that they that was dead and they said there was a black bear that had uh quote disturbed the body end quote what what does that mean like does this black bear was there a predation kill was it a spook kill or did this bear come across an already dead body and so again it's 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 showing that uh as you said there's no disney side of wildlife as as much as We'd, we'd love to believe it. We know, we know it's the, not the truth. So, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, in some ways I love what Disney and, and sort of the narrative around that is done because, you know, they, they elevated the importance of wildlife in Absolutely. people's lives, right. In, in their homes and in their communities. Uh, but what it's also done is created this unrealistic expectation of what these animals are and, and there's no real appreciation for the circle of life through that, right, either. So that's mm-hmm. there's that disconnect that uh, while there appreciations there, the circle of life is is totally lost in that in that whole thing. And uh, and then we get these people that you know you can never harm an animal, and there, there's no real understanding of what really happens in the forest, right? So yeah, for anyway, sure. So we totally went on enough about that. there, but <laughs> yeah. So um, gear talk. We, we do. A, well, before we get there, let's just um, before we take into that, let's touch base. We have one raffle that's open currently, right? Um, so get your tickets. We're going to sell this one out. Um, we're actually going to have a pub night in Victoria, October sixteenth. It's scheduled. It's yet to be confirmed, and that's because of COVID. Um, but we are drawing some other raffle stuff October sixteenth, including this raffle that we're going to discuss shortly. So um, you want to get those tickets. This thing is well over half sold out. Um, this is a great little unit it's um uh it's called the gen 2 doghouse with badlands series acu digital camo roughneck edition tent so basically it's a trailer that you turn into a tent it's got running water it's got a stove um it's it's meant for the off-road but you convert it into this really cool um tent um unit uh so super really like it's just amazing little unit Mm -hmm. um it was a donation from uh, the good people over at kit distributors and uh, doghouse tents so it's um just a, a really cool little unit uh tickets are on sale at our website uh, wildsheepsociety.com forward slash raffle um there's only 400 tickets available so your odds are really good and uh, we're going to draw that in victoria october 16th so you got um month and a half to get your tickets but don't wait because um like all our raffles they do tend to sell out I, I expect that with this one as well so great little unit um check it out online 
yeah, we've had multiple raffles sell out, as Kyle's just said. And a, a lot of the, the people come to us and go, damn it, two weeks out, it sells out. And they go, damn it, I shouldn't have waited. So here's here's your fair warning that it will sell out and it will be before you expect it to. Right on, Steve. All right, so episode 42. So this is actually that we recorded this in conjunction with episode 41. So we talked about uh, Mike and I in the mountain uh, chasing sheep. Um, talked about our hunt, but then we segued into a gear talk after that. So, you know, we kind of, it was a personal experience. Uh, we talked lots about gear. We talked about some of the new gear we bought, some of the old gear we were using, some of the things that failed on us. Uh, we didn't throw anyone under the bus. So um, there was some pieces of equipment that did break down throughout the hunt. Um, some of the stuff that maybe failed us a little bit. And then some of the stuff that really performed well, we got some new gear, um, stuff that we're looking for for 22 that we'd like to have on the mountain that we're looking for. Um, so I uh, just want to make a comment that we talk lots about different brands, right? And uh, I have no specific brand that I, you know, it's I'm, I exclusively run. Um, I run what works best for me. And I think it's important to note that there's a lot of great gear manufacturers in the hunting space out there right now. And actually some that are outside the hunting space. Uh, and uh, maybe some people are going to get after me, but look at Arcteryx. It's a Canadian company and they run great gear, expensive as hell, uh, but top-notch rain gear, right? So, but you're not going to get any camel rain gear. And there's other um, other providers in the hunting space that provide great rain gear as well. I, I run the Stormfront from Sicket Gear and uh, swear by it. Um, Mike's switching to that this year. He's got the, the top and he's going to get the pants this year. Um, so just a great piece of kit from Sitka who happens to be our conservation partner as well. So just a shout out to Sitka Gear um, for all their support in British Columbia. Um, I was just doing the math and they're roughly $100,000 in donations to the Wild Sheep Society of BC over the last three years in BC. So if you're looking for someone to support in the hunting world, um, you know, first and foremost, you're going to look for a piece of kit that's going to work for you, right? Um, you're not going to just blindly support somebody that is going to donate based on donations. I, I get that. That has to be quality gear. Um, my, my experience with Sitka is they're there, um, their quality stuff. I don't run everything exclusively Sitka. I've got some other pieces. Um, but the, the pieces I do have, I love, and I swear by it. And, uh, I, I just really like what they do for, uh, for gear first and foremost. And boy, in terms of conservation in BC, it's pretty hard to beat them. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm new to the mountain hunting world, as you know, and I, I went on, uh, people's recommendations and the name that consistently came up was Sitka and that's what I'm running this year and I'm sure it'll perform really well for me and I'm getting stoked for it. So I'm interested um, you're going on your hunt here um, in September at caribou slash sheep combo um, I'll be curious for your feedback on that on the dew point so I'm running the storm front system the dew point's a bit lighter uh, but it's not as robust being lighter so you know if you get into the heavy rains now we didn't have much for rain on this trip and the storm front was overkill dew point would have been perfect but obviously you can't have three or four different well i can't mm -hmm. on my budget have three or four different sets of rain gear so um you know i've kind of mine's a late season set um i can run i can wear them in november and i can wear them in august right but it's a bit more they're a bit heavier i compare my rain pants to mike and mine are double the weight right but they're also mm -hmm. super durable in terms of the protection right so yeah be, be curious i hope i don't have to use it but uh you never know in mid-september right well buddy you're gonna use it so <laughs> it's interesting um like i know you're you're you know this is one of your first mountain trips um and, and you're an experienced hunter by all um 
by uh, all standards, but in terms of the mountains, this is some of this is new to you. Um, yeah. Interesting with your rain pants. Lots of times you'll wear your rain pants in the morning when you're hiking, right? Because uh, there's mm-hmm. the dew on the trees or you don't even have to have rain. But usually you get up in the morning. If you're doing an early morning hunt and you have to hike anywhere, you're probably going to throw your rain pants on, maybe even your jacket because uh, everything's got dew on it. And otherwise, you're, you know, then all of a sudden your pants are wet and, and you're kind of. Yeah, exactly. So you'll, you'll dry out. It's not like you're soaked to the bone, but you're going to be wet. Um, so quite often that first morning hike, we'll throw the the rain gear on, at least the lead guy, the guy that's leading through the bush, right. he'll wear the rain pants, the guy behind him, you know, he's kind of knocked a lot of it off. And that's where, you know, you flip a coin in the morning when, the, when you're hiking through that stuff, because somebody's got a bus brush and he's going to get wet and the other guy's going to stay fairly dry. Right. So works for me. Yeah. Right on. So um, yeah, so like I said, on this podcast, we, we talk lots about gear and we talk about different brands. Um, we're not really brand centric per se. We just talk about the brands that are working for us. And just a, a reminder that there are lots of great gear providers out there. Um, you know, these are the ones that work for me personally. I haven't tried them all. So, and I'm not an experienced guy. That's where when I talk to the Clay Lancasters of the world or the Shane Pallisters or, uh, you know, those guys, th- those are the guys that see the stuff. But again, a lot of the times they find they find something that works for them and and they don't necessarily use the other gear either. So, you know, boots are one classic example. Another one are packs. Um, you know, that there's some that fit for you and some maybe that aren't a good fit for you. And it's just trying to find those ones that are yep. a good fit and and what work, right? So Yeah, absolutely. And we mentioned it uh, two podcasts ago or yeah, on the last podcast, wasn't it? Uh, where that that Barney's just won't sit right on me and the sit coat or the uh, stone glacier like a glove. Yeah. I, I really think that, that, um, that Barney's is just an adjustment issue. We'll get that sorted out for you for sure. Um, we'll definitely reach out to Kevin. He'll give us some tips there. And, and I don't, I don't have a solution cause I'm not a, I'm not a backpack guy, but uh, Kevin knows his gear well. And, and I'm sure that, um, and in terms of, you know, for you hauling caribou quarters off the mountain, that's that's going to be a re- like that external frame is going to be your buddy if you can get it sorted and, and it fits exactly. right. I, and so, yeah, Let, let's cool. see if okay. we can uh, get let's see if we can get Kevin on a Zoom even fifteen minutes, just the three of us. Yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't um, well, we'll we'll chat we'll about that it. off the air. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I like that for sure. Okay, so episode 42, um, Gear Talk, um, again with myself and uh, Mike Kirk coming off the uh, Northern BC. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive. Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. All right. Well, let's let's segue now and um, let's talk about some gear. So, um, you know, Mike and I was you know thirteen days with a guy in the backcountry, and then the two days up, two days back in a truck. You have a lot of time to discuss things and strategies and gear and and all these different things and. Uh, you know, it's. I always enjoy listening to the the guys that do this for a living. You know, the the Nolan Osborns or the Clay Lancasters, the Shane Pallisters, and uh, I always learn something from these guys. So um, we're going to pass along some things that we learned on this trip um, and talk about some of our gear um, and and just kind of go go through that sort of stuff um, and touch base on 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 those things. So um, 
yeah, so I guess, um, Mike, um, let's start off with with our sleeping facility. So, you know, you and I, we have quite an array of tents, right? We have three or four different ones. So you, you had your original Eureka, which we've uh, you've since retired. Um, we purchased an LOGT4, which we thought was a three-man, but it's actually a four-man. So we, we have this very cool Hilleberg that we, we bought for a caribou hunt a few years ago. Um, then we got a lightweight REI, which is a truly a three man, which would have been probably perfect for the hunt really. And then we've got the tarp tent that we've used in the past. So, um, on this one, we, we took our Nalo GT four, um, which I think was a great, great call. What are your, your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. Kyle. Um, you know, we've, I'd say our two go-to pieces of, uh, our tents, um, are basically the Hilleberg and the Bearpaw, um, tarp tent. And uh, we've learned the, the limitations of the bear paw. So the bear paw is great in the fact that it's, it's Cuban fiber. For those who don't know, it's, it's kind of like a tarp plastic hybrid. It's almost unrippable. Um, and you set up one pole in the middle, then you stake it out and gives you a pretty good footprint. I guess you probably sleep about three people in it. It's kind of, uh, it's, got a, it's got a square footprint on the bottom and then it goes up to a peak at the top, like one, one peak with a tent pole. They probably put in about uh, 12 stakes. Um, and then there's bug, um, bug netting on the bottom. So all up, it probably weighs just over a pound. So that, that's the beauty of that, that particular item. Um, one of the downsides of that item is the fact that it is only a single layer and it doesn't breathe. So, you know, if it's really hot, humid conditions, you're getting a lot of moisture and you're waking up sometimes a couple times at nighttime with a little cloth, you're wiping it down. That's one of the limitations. Uh, the other limitations Kyle and I learned last year, unfortunately, was, uh, oh, unfortunately, Kyle and I sometimes have to learn the same mistake two or three times before we lock it in. And that is when you're tired and uh, getting a little bit lazy, um, don't set up on a mountain pass. <laughs> Just because there's zero wind and a million miles visibility, you think this is an idyllic place. doesn't mean that's going to be the same way in uh, you know three, four or five hours and the mountains, as we all know, that the weather could change four or five times in any given day. So we had set up probably about 5 p.m. after hiking about eight hours. So we are, we're really tired. We'd, we'd come probably about another, I don't know, 12, 13 kilometers, climbed over a mountain pass, dropped back down into a valley. And we said, basically, this is as far as we can go. But uh, why don't we, uh, instead of dropping down 500 feet, why don't we stand this mountain pass so we get a few more glassing opportunities? So. We set up a uh, camp, set up the tarp tent, and uh, we should have known because there was not a stick of vegetation. Everything was totally windblown on this mountain pass. And so uh, at about 2 p.m. in the morning, uh, we're tucked into bed, feeling warm and content and safe and secure. And suddenly it wasn't, you know, it was probably blown again. This time, Kyle, would I be exaggerating and say 80 kilometers an hour? I you don't know, think it so. Was, it was 80 kilometers an hour plus. And uh, we're sitting there and one of the limitations of the tarp tent is it only comes down to about six inches off the ground and the bug netting starts um, and the air was getting underneath. So I think structurally it would have been sound if we could have staked it right to the ground, but uh, it's design doesn't allow that for ventilation. So it was actually lifting from the inside out. So Kyle and I were, were both that we're literally holding it down so it doesn't blow away on us. And it, I, was it raining as well, Kyle? I think it was. It was, yeah. Yeah, I think it was a torrential downpour. So the risk was not only would we, leave, would we lose our uh, tarp tent, but everything within it would get blown away as well instantly and get wet. So 
Kyle, he volunteers, he jumps out and he's in his long johns, I believe. And uh, it's blowing 80 kilometers an hour, heavy rain, and he's restaking everything because our stakes are letting go. It's like pop one goes, pop the other goes. So Kyle's out there for like half an hour restaking the whole time. I'm holding the tarp tent down from the inside. And uh, so eventually we said, we got to get out of here. This is going to work. And the wind's not abating. If anything, it's increasing in strength. So we take turns holding the, the tarp tent down from the inside. Well, the other person just packs up their bag. So we took our, our backpacks with them and every piece of um, item or every item we owned, we're just stuffing in as fast as we can, not rolling, not folding, nothing. And uh, just get it all together. And then uh, the last piece of equipment that came down was the tarp tent. And we just sort of basically ran off the mountain. And as soon as we got 500 feet below, it was, uh, I wouldn't say flat calm, but maybe it was 20 kilometers an hour. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, we uh, left a few items up there in the confusion and darkness and the wind, and uh, they blew away. So, but uh, fortunately, I came back in a few days, and I found my couple items. But what did you lose, Kyle? Something took off on you? Yeah, my merino gloves. They were both hey, missing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so those are the limitations for that particular structure. So they're it's it's great, you know, it's weighs a pound, but I don't think I would ever plan a sheet trip knowing I'm going to spend it on top of the mountains with that particular item. That's what. That's where we have the Hilleberg. And the Hilleberg, I mean, it's, it's bomb-proof in those particular conditions. It has a lot to offer. The only downside to that particular uh, Nala GT was the fact the footprint. It's got such a big vestibule on it and stuff. We had we are having a hard time finding places large enough to set it up. But And that, in a way, it, it is eight pounds, and that's a little luxurious for a two-week backpacking trip. But uh, it didn't seem to burden us too much, eh, Kyle? I think we are roughly 65, 67 pounds going in for two weeks, so... Yeah, what what do we weigh? I think I was sixty four and you were sixty one. Is that what we were? And that that includes the rifle and all our food, everything, no water, but everything else, right? Yeah, so 60, yeah, sixty four, yeah. sixty one. Yeah, so that's exceptional, you know. So, but I think we can do better with regards to the tent, right? Well, I think kind of we're we're both thinking about buying another uh, or a smaller version of the Hilleberg, maybe a three person or a two person or something. See what's out there. Yeah, is so that that's kind to, of is that big enough? Is that big enough to hold your gear for two guys <laughs> plus your gear? I have no idea. Well, I mean, I, well, Steve, like you can go with a smaller tent without a vestibule. Of course, that's going to save you weight, but, you, but then again, you're going to have to come up with some kind of strategy to uh, protect your backpack. So, right. um, so Kyle with his other tents, was it the REI one, Kyle, or MEC one? It's you, we actually brought, uh, well, you have pack covers, but a lot of times in the mountain weather, that's not uh, adequate enough to keep all the elements out. So we actually bring like a black garbage bag like a contractor bag and we'll tie it up and we'll put it inside that. And even then sometimes with the wind really bad, you could come out your pack. Well, our experience could be, I wouldn't say blown away, but maybe blown away. <laughs> so we weigh it down with rocks on top of the mountain. So um, the vestibules are great. I don't want to say the necessity. It's a bit of a luxury, but uh, more than one time we cooked in a vestibule on this trip because it was just raining so hard and, and the elements uh, were making it uncomfortable. So yeah, the you know the four is super luxurious, Steve. For two guys, it's it's overkill. A three would be more appropriate, and so there's the weight savings, right? Like that's part of it. But then even more so, the footprint when you're up on the mountain and you're you know you're pressed for places to. Even at the lake, we had a hard time finding a place that was flat, right? And uh, um, Mike didn't have a great sleep the last night because we were kind of in a he, he wasn't in a great spot um, where he was set up. He was kind of on a knoll, and but there's just no flat spot. Whereas if you had a smaller like a three man um, it's going to increase your chances of, of having, um, and I think they typically recommend one size above, right? Like if you've got two men, you have two people, you have a 
a three man, if you have three people, a four man and so forth. Right. So, um, that three, it'd be a nice, nice to have a, a three man for, for the two of us on that hunt, but definitely the Hilleberg was the right call on this one, Mike, cause there were just so many different opportunities for us to get messed over. Like I, I know the two times we stayed on top, we would have probably been forced off with that tarp tent. I don't think we could have stayed. Certainly that the second place we moved to on, like on top of the plateau, there's no way we could have stayed there with that tarp tent. It just wouldn't have, it was not going to yeah. work out. Yeah. The, the only, I mean, yeah, it, the only benefit to the tarp tent is the weight savings. Yeah. You know, so, however, having said that, the Hilleberg uh, with the footprint, uh, I think one thing we did notice was uh, setting up uh, it properly is a little more critical. Uh, where a lot of tents are very forgiving, you can put them up and you just set your poles and your pegs and they're taut. Where the Hilleberg, unless you set it up perfectly and you have a really flat spot, there's always going to be some loose parts within that structure, within the tent structure itself, and which results in a lot of flapping. And then a lot of touching between the inner and the uh, tent and the outer tarp. And we got a little bit of moisture um, ingress because of that, but not a lot. But uh, it definitely kept us awake at night. Because It sounded like sails flapping in the wind. And we did everything we could to uh, make it as tight as possible. But when you have undulating terrain, you just we just couldn't stretch it out as much as we wanted to. So bring your yes. plugs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which, uh, you know, that, that brings up another question. Let's talk about that. We'll jump into that. That's a good segue is earplugs. Um, you know, earplugs are not, right? So obviously we use the softies for shooting. They're a great opportunity. It's pretty hard to carry, uh, you know, hard, you know, the full ear cover um, for, for shooting. So, you know, we use the softies for that, obviously. Um, but then, you know, I'd be curious to know any of our listeners, what your thoughts are. Do you, are you guys earplugs people or not? Obviously your quality sleep is better and there's a number of factors in the woods, right? Like if you're by a lake or you're by a, you know, a fast moving stream, like we were the majority of the time, we always tried to find a water source except for up top. Clearly you couldn't do that, but where you could. Um, so you had a lot of extra noise there. So, you know, trying to get a good night's sleep, but there's a huge downside. One of which is, if there's a porcupine or even a, a, a grizzly in camp, you're not going to hear it, right? Or reduces your chances of hearing it. So uh, curious to know people's thoughts on that. Do you wear earplugs? Do you not? And uh, and then the other side of it is um, <laughs> you can't hear your alarm clock. So, you know, <laughs> you, you know Mike and I struggled with that. Um, and we've done this before. We, like we set alarms and uh, we both have wristwatches, which we'd use. And then for whatever if you got earplugs, you end up not hearing your alarm and then you, you wake up and you, you miss, you know, prime glassing opportunity, which is critical. You're only in there for 10 days or two weeks and now you're missing out on that. So that's one of the pieces of gear that we discussed um, picking up was like a more, uh, like a louder, like we're so used to iPhones now or your smartphone where it just is blasting here, right? You're not going to miss it. So the, the little alarm on a, on a wristwatch is just not adequate, right? So that's, that's one of the things I think on your list of things to get, right? Mike is a good alarm. Yeah, I, I think it's good to note that we're we're blaming the uh, the lack of hearing the alarm on the softy earplugs as opposed to our audio range diminishing as we age. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, no, I think I think it's important to live a, a, a backstory for Kyle. Now we're both airline pilots, and you know, as as a result, you know, sleeping in an airplane for the last uh, 25, 30 years, uh, we generally wear earplugs because uh, there's a lot of noise, a lot of wind noise, and such. So that's translated into our everyday life. So to me, that's just normal sleeping with earplugs. In fact, it feels unnatural to sleep without them. So, but it always comes down uh, to the question, uh, I, when you're sleeping in the bush, I think for me, um, getting a good night's sleep is very important, allowing your body to uh, to recover. 
um, and give you more opportunities for the next day as well. So a few more miles you can climb. Um, but uh, Kyle generally doesn't snore, so I don't wear earplugs because of that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a tough question because I've never had a grizzly come into camp uh, within the last 20 years anyway. Uh, we know they're there. But uh, yeah, would you rather have a good night's sleep or would you rather be aware that there's a grizzly in camp uh, messing around with stuff? So we've actually slept without them a few times and it did save some of our gear right Kyle we can hear stuff messing around with our food in the trees or something else the porcupine's climbing so um yeah no, I think it's a tough decision I don't know if there's any right or wrong decision in that regard right on okay so uh new gear pieces so for me I'll, I'll jump on this one first uh, the big piece for me this year was I um my the backstory is I've I've run a few different packs over the years. I had an Eberly stock for my first sheep trip, and that was just painful. It was not that it was a bad pack; it was the wrong pack for what I was using it for. And uh, you know, you put a hundred pounds in an Eberly stock and uh, strap some sheep horns to it. It was it was not a comfortable situation. Uh, so Mike quickly convinced me, "Oh, you need to do something different." So I think that was when I bought my first Barney's pack and uh, external frame uh, Barney's Yukon. Uh, out of Barney Sports Chalet in, uh, in Anchorage. And uh, that was great, a great pack. Um, external frame, uh, I used it on my caribou hunt. That's, I would say that by far has the, been the best usage for that pack, although I used it on a sheep hunt. It was great for that too. But a little bit heavier than sort of an internal frame pack, uh, but just super comfortable, especially at heavy weights. So you can throw 140 pounds on it, and you're never going to find a more comfortable experience than with the, pack, the Barneys, in my opinion. Um, so a couple of years ago, I upgraded to a stone glacier for sheep hunting and, uh, it was good. I like it. And Mike did the same. He, he purchased one as well. Um, and, but for me, it just didn't quite fit as much as, uh, as, as good as I liked it. So, um, this year I thought I'm going to try out the new Kefaro. So I got a Kefaro muskeg. So that was my new gear piece this year. And I have to say that was a great fit for me. A really, really, um, great pack that I, I really felt good in it, it was um really comfortable uh handled the weight well um and and one of the pieces i tried this year and uh steve on the way up we went through prince george and you see me uh messing with the gun bear so it comes with a gun bear uh, or I, I purchased one to go with it and uh boy uh, that gun bear is a slick piece of kit I'll, you know, i i loved it it was super super once i got it figured out and, and how you use it there's a few limitations and a few things you got to figure out uh specifically when you're taking your pack on and off, um, I take my rifle off before I take my pack off and I put my pack on and then put my rifle in the bear. I was trying to do it together and I hit myself in the head about six times before I figured <laughs> I had to do things differently. And maybe there's a way, if somebody knows a way, let me know. Cause, uh, but, um, you know, it's one extra step, but the cool thing is, is when you pick up your pack and your pack's 70 pounds, um, and then you got an eight pound rifle, if you put your 70 pound pack on and then put your eight pound rifle on, it's, it's a hell of a lot easier. It makes you feel a lot better than putting a 78 pound pack on. Right. So that was actually one of the benefits. And once I sort of got that system down, I really liked it. The pack itself was, uh, I've never had a Kefaru product before. Um, our VP, Mike Selden to the society, he runs them and he swears by them. And he said, dude, you got to check it out. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a great fit. Really, really happy with the product. And, uh, I'm definitely gonna, um, definitely gonna use that again for sheep hunting. I really like it. Um, so yeah, um, Mike, over to you. What's uh, what what piece of equipment was uh, your new for you this year? Well, uh, 
to touch back on the backstory again, being an airline pilot and flying international routes, I haven't flown in a year and a half. Therefore, my uh, my income has been decreased dramatically. So my eternal quest for new gear, you know, has been truncated. So I don't think I've had uh, much new gear. I've had uh, gear envy with Kyle because Kyle's been gainfully employed and flying across the world for the last year. I, in fact, I think he is anticipating being laid off, spending all of uh, lots of money <laughs> prior to that happening. Um, so yeah, no real new gear for me. Just uh, I stuck with my own my old Stone Glacier, my old rifle and stuff. I don't really think I purchased any new equipment this year. Did I, Kyle? Can you? Yeah, no, you're right. Um, and on that note, the Stone Glacier, you know, we were talking about that, and and you, re- that's a really good fit for you. You've been really happy with that pack, haven't you? Yeah. So uh, you know, one of the issues I have, um, uh, well, I say one of the issues I had with the pack is that it didn't quite fit, and that was more or less a user error. I didn't know how to fit a, a pack properly. It was always sagging a little bit too far down on my back and creating pressure points, you know, around my upper buttocks that shouldn't have been there. So. I guess I, I thought I had a different physique than I did. Um, so I went back in there, watched the video on, on fitting, and I readjusted it, and I shortened up the torso quite dramatically. And then I all of a sudden I had a proper fitting pat, and it felt great. You know, it was basically raising the hips uh, above where I'd, I'd had them riding before. Um, so the pack worked extremely well for me. You know, I, I, it, uh, it fit well. Uh, I wouldn't say I didn't have pack envy, you know, um, between the two packs. Um, the Kifaru, um, it definitely seems like a great pack. It's maybe something I'll try in the future, but at the moment, I'm still happy with the, with the Stone Glacier. It's it's an exceptional pack for the mountains. It carries enough gear for, uh, for a two-week trip. It, it does it well. Um, yeah, I, I don't really see a lot of limitations with that particular pack. I'll, I'll probably keep on running it until it's uh, threadbare. Well, yeah, you, and, you talk, talking about how packs fit, you guys saw here firsthand, the Kyle raves about the Varneys and you saw it on me. It just yeah. won't fit me right. No matter what the experienced guys could do, it just won't sit well to the point. Wow. Kyle took a picture of it to send to Kevin in, uh, in Alaska to figure it, to see if he could figure it out. And on the other hand, Kyle's stone glacier fits me absolutely perfect. And mm-hmm. I can walk with that and do 10, 12 K and with 50 pounds on the back. And it's, it's great. So yeah, it's, that, that fitting properly is key. Yeah, I guess that's like, just like boots, right? Uh, not every boot fits everybody. Um, you, you might have to work your way through a few before it, it makes it work. Uh, you find what one particular works with your um, physical, uh, or I wouldn't say abilities, but attributes. Or uh... yeah, for sure. Um, okay, cool. Um, and yeah, it's, and you run the yours is a Stone Glacier, the sixty nine hundred, the Sky Guide, I think, right, Mike? It's a sixty nine hundred liter um or 6900 cc one is the one that that's you're correct. that's you're correct. running with the yeah, top cool. with the top yeah. lid yeah yeah for sure so yeah yeah great pack too and uh yeah i love it love that pack as well and um okay cool so that's pack so um so i i know your my your wife's milling around the background so i probably shouldn't ask you about new gear right now but we did talk about new gear on the trip so um you had some failures so talk about your failures on of your gear on on the trip mike sure um so one was the inReach, a very important piece of equipment um, that failed. So it's, uh, it's, it's a few years old. I think it's five or six years old now. However, I, I don't use it throughout the year. It's generally just through the hunting season, maybe a bit of backpacking or fishing in the fall. But it doesn't see a lot of usage. I'm generally pretty protective with it. You know, it stays in a dry container and it stays in a stuff sack on the top of my pack. So it doesn't get a lot of abuse. Um, 
but yeah, it, it definitely failed. So I was getting weird messages. It would, well, first of all, I don't know if Kyle believed me or not. He thought there again, it was operator error, but I'm like, Hey, my inReach turned on by itself. It was autonomously. It turned itself on. And he's like, no, nah, that couldn't happen. I'm like, no, it, it absolutely happened. And, uh, I look at it, it'd be some strange messages on the screen saying, uh, about, uh, an update, you know, do you want your software update at this particular moment? It, it'll wipe all your data, something like this. So the first time it happened, I thought, well, maybe there was this, it was just in my bag and it, it got turned on. Maybe another piece of equipment hit the on button for an extended period of time. And, but it, it still didn't make sense as I, as I went in there with 99% or hundred percent on the battery charge, I'd, I'd look at it a couple hours later and it, after it turned itself on and it would be down to 60%. So I, at that point, it happened two or three times. I was down to 30 odd percent. So I decided I, I can't, maybe it's the jostling. I knew something was wrong with it internally. I didn't know if it was software or it was something to do with uh, the wiring. Maybe there's a contact inside that was uh, messing it up, turning itself on. So I just left it in the tent. And uh, so I could at least, you know, text my wife once every few days and let her know or update our position with her. And uh, I think on the fifth or sixth day, I went to turn it on and it just wouldn't turn on anymore, you know? So, uh, therefore I, Kyle was kind enough to let me use his every few days to, uh, to contact home, but it was, uh, it was definitely a failure. I mean, I love the piece of equipment. I think it's, uh, it's invaluable in the backcountry for, for security, for safety, for communication, you know, it allows two hunters such as Kyle and myself to go to different ridges and, and, uh, you know, you initially make plans, but invariably things change in the mountains. So whether it's time or locations, you can let the other person know and they're not worried about you. And, uh, and, and if you go on a solo trip, it's there again, it's even a more critical piece of equipment for allowing people to know where you're at, you know, and uh, giving peace of mind to your loved ones. But yeah, it failed. So I'm going to contact uh, InReach and we'll see how they respond. I'll see if maybe it's not a new piece of equipment, but I think it should have lasted maybe a little bit longer and not had a such a, a massive failure at a critical stage of the hunt. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely a su super important piece of gear. Um, okay. So hiking poles. So um, you and I run the same poles. We're running uh, black diamond. Uh, we got the carbon cork, I think they're called um, and the, with the flick locks. And uh, so mine now are getting, I think about five or six years old, but the, the corks failing on mine. So I'm going to have to either get the handles recorked or, um, or maybe look at new ones. And, uh, but you, you had an experience with yours too. Um, you had, had a bit of a failure there. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Uh, me and hiking poles, we don't get along too well, but, uh, you know, Kyle's one initially introduced me to, uh, hiking poles. You know, I spent a lot of time in the mountains prior to meeting Kyle and us becoming hunting partners. And I guess my young knees and my ego maybe, uh, dictated whether I, I didn't need these poles or not. So eventually, uh, yeah, sore knees and sore lower back. It, it, it sort of, and, and Kyle, um, following his lead, it made me uh, relinquish and buy my own set. But of course, at, at that stage of my life, it was all about lightweight, lightweight, almost at the, at the exclusion of quality and robustness. So I bought a pair of these ultra lightweight poles um, from a company in the East Coast of America. And uh, they were high quality, but as it turned out, they're just so lightly built. They're almost, I mean, they were usable, but not maybe on a hiking trail up uh, Mount Washington or something like that, you know. So I, I'm definitely good for groom trails, um, but not for the stuff we do. And uh, I think Kyle was at the first day we we're heading up into the bowl. They, they broke or one of them broke, right? <laughs> it just didn't last. It lasted about three hours and snapped. These are $150 poles. So I, I, I 
contacted the company and they were good enough to give me a full refund and basically said, yeah, that's not what their, their application is for. So I looked at Kyle and he was running the Black Diamonds for a few years. He was more than happy with it, albeit they were probably three times heavier than the ones I'd previously used. And uh, yeah, we were, uh, it was a all day affair again. I think we had been hiking for, well, the day was probably 14 hours long, but uh, we were four hours up and then probably three hours back and uh, just absolutely exhausted from the physical physical exertion, the, the weather, um, and now it's getting later in the hunt. So, you know, lack, lack of calories and, uh, we are just busting brush. So we're, there was no trails and we're going through the buck brush and the undulating terrain and the thick spruce. And, and I put one pole down and, you know, as, as we all know, when, uh, your energy levels are dropping precipitously, so does, so do you physically, you know, you start falling and tripping and, uh, so yeah, I put my pole down and I, you know, you know, sometimes they lock in a little more than others. It probably went about 12 inches into the roots, into the moss and such. And as I fell, I should have let go of the pole, but I tried to use it to brace me and it's, it snapped. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, so, but anyway, that's just, uh, that's just user error. I wouldn't blame the pole for that. That's, you know, me, I'm probably about 190 pounds and we had a 40 pound pack. So 230 pounds, you know, sort of using this uh, pole as a lever doesn't go over too well. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, systems. So I run um, base systems. I run the uh, icebreaker, which I really like. I'm a big fan of that. Um, uh, pretty much all my stuff, uh, socks, um, T-shirt, um, long underwear, um, all that stuff is icebreaker, um, merino. So love that. Um Mike, you're you're a little bit. You run some synthetics, but some merino. Um, what, what's what's your system there? Yeah, so all my external is not merino. It's um, but yeah, my my base layers are definitely merino. But I, I generally sort of source it from different places. So maybe a, yeah, my budget isn't as large as yours for these discretionary spending. But uh, you know, I'll look. I'll buy some from uh, from Sitka. I'll buy some from uh, MEC. I'll buy some from Kuyu. I'm happy with it, with it all. So I'm, I'm definitely a, a natural fiber type of guy. I, I love my Merino. Um, keeps you warm, keeps you cool, and, and keeps the odors down. The only drawback I've found with some of the Merinos is they, they do tend to rip pretty easily. So uh, I look now for when I buy a Merino, regardless of the, um, the thickness, I try to look for one that's a little more blend in it. It's not 100% Merino or even 90% Merino, maybe like 70 75%. It allows me to pull them on and, and take them off without actually ripping it or getting snagged in a in some spruce. So that's my um, my my base layers. Um, you know, I've, I've I used to have a huge drive towards ultra lightweight, but still looking for quality. But I've I've found, you know, I'm replacing a lot of gear. I spent a lot of money on some rain gear, some external gear, and it just doesn't last. You know, the ultra lightweight stuff. Some of the hunting we do, maybe if it was all in the alpine and you weren't sort of busting through brush all day long, um, then it may last more than a few seasons. But, uh, you know, I persevered with a couple of pairs of rain pants from a, from a from a major maker of hunting outdoor equipment, and it just hasn't lasted. You know, so it went into the garbage this time because it was, they rip easy, but also, uh, I guess, not being a, a three-layer uh, rain pant, I was actually almost getting wetter wearing them. You know, I was wondering how it was happening because you, you have the fabric itself, and it's got a coating on the outside, but the inside, I don't sure what the, the particular um, coating would be called, but it was almost like a, a rubberized, breathable material. And uh, it was almost letting the moisture in, and then it was then it was locking it in. Um, 
So not only did I think that particular pant, or I have two versions of that pant, were not robust enough for the application or the type of hunting we do, but also wasn't doing a good job at all of keeping me dry. To the point where near the end of the trip when it was raining, I just took off my pants, my hunting pants, and then I'd just wear the rain pants so my pants underneath wouldn't get soaked. So whenever it rained or we hiked, I just wore my rain pants. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you, you brought up a, an interesting point there, and it's the whole lightweight versus quality uh, discussion, right? So, you know, I I, I run the and, and you you kind of uh, chided me a little bit in the past where I run those Stormfront um, rain gear, right? And but it's absolutely like they're so good when it comes to rain protection, right? It just they're phenomenal, but they're heavy. Like it's a pound and a half or something ridiculous for you know, for the gear, but it's such good quality. Um, same thing, you know, you mentioned the hiking pole. So there's that compromise, right? Trying to find what's more important, lightweight versus um, quality. But, uh, you know, and it's interesting, Steve, I know you just upgraded the dew point from Sitka, right? So they're, I think that's kind of their mid-level rain gear. It's not going to have the rain protection that the Stormfront has, but it's certainly going to be a lot lighter and it's going to be great for that mountain experience. But if you go too far, like in Mike's case with his rain gear there, they're pretty much not rain gear, right? You, you're, you're almost better off without them. It's uh, So it's it's trying to find that balance. And it, rain gear is such a weird one too, right? Because you can easily well, – a storm front system from Sitka off the sh- shelf is – it's over a 1000 bucks. But they're not even the expensive ones. You look at Arc'teryx, and Arc'teryx rain, rain gear sets three grand, mm-hmm. right? So it's mm-hmm. – uh, you know, it's it's trying to find that healthy balance and, and what works for you in terms of uh, weight versus – um, you know, quality, but yeah, for me, I'm, I'm really happy with the Stormfront. I've run it. I've actually had two systems now. I, I had the, I bought the first one years ago and I've put on a few pounds. So, um, I, I, uh, upgraded, uh, and got a new set last year and, and I just, they, I feel really good in the mountains with them. They see a lot of protection from the rain. So. I'd have to agree, Kyle. I mean, I follow your lead many times and with the rain gear is definitely one of those situations. You know, I, I upgraded the jacket a few years back to the Sitka Stormfront, I've been nothing but happy with it. It's amazing, actually. And then uh, I, uh, I also attempted to buy some rain pants, the Sitka Stormfront, and uh, I bought them, and unfortunately, they're one size too small. Um, so I wasn't able to take them on this trip. So, But uh, anyway, yeah, I'm going to buy another pair that are larger. And I, it, it seems so good, the quality. Um, I think they'd last, I wouldn't say a lifetime, but I can envision many years on the hills with those uh, Stormfronts for sure. Yeah, right on. Um, okay, so let's just touch on gators. So, you know, you and I, for years, we, we didn't even consider gators really. And then eventually we kind of came around to it and now we're running gators. So they're, um, they're great. Um, I know you had a set that you weren't overly happy with. Um, I ran a set of uh, Sitka and they, they were good, but um, I had a failure on them. I contacted Sitka, Sitka customer service and they were fantastic. They uh, sent me a brand new set um, and they revamped them a little bit. They did some work on them. I was a little concerned that they would fail again, but no, they'd, they'd done some work on them and these are much more durable. They've lasted me a lot longer, so I'm really happy with them. But uh, I, So you just picked up a, a set of outdoor research and you're really happy with them, aren't you, Mike? Yeah, correct. This is the second year I've been running them. Um, previous to that, I ran other ones from different manufacturers and they rarely lasted me more than a year. You know, either the snaps were failing, the zippers were failing, or something just wasn't working with them. Um, and it, the failure got to the, were at the point where I, I couldn't fix them. You know, having said that, the manufacturers were generally pretty good with replacing them. But you know, I, 
I'd rather have something that lasts on the mount and, you know, and, and not fail every year than have a great warranty, right? So I'd rather have both. But uh, yeah, so I, I did a bunch of research on the non-hunting websites and forums. And a lot of people raved, you know, about the outdoor research ones. So I, I tried them and the second year running, no failures. They work great. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely going to stick with that. Um, uh, they don't come in sort of camo for obvious reasons because that's not their demo- dem- demographic. But uh, I run them in black and uh, yeah, they're great. They're easy to put on, um, durable and yeah, comfortable. I can't complain about them at all. Mm-hmm. I've been running uh, outdoor research gators for a few years. Absolutely. I love them. No problems, yeah. no failures. The, the Velcro that uh, puts them together, just so stable, so strong. Yeah. No, no problems. Love them. Yeah, that's the problem. I think Kyle's run in the past. The ones with, a lot of times with zippers, right? You have mm-hmm. zipper failure or, or the Velcro. I mean, no moving parts, right? Nope. <laughs> just, yeah. Just keep dirt and debris out of the Velcro and they'll work fine. Yeah. Right on. Okay. So, you know, you we're talking about all this gear. Just a couple of things that, you know, I think is worthy to comment on is that, you know, we're, we're mentioning the gear that works for us. That doesn't mean that there's not other great companies out there that run that gear. So we're not picking on any particular company or system. Um, you know, I have stuff that works for me and, and maybe I have a system, but then I'll have one piece that's a one-off from a different uh, brand. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is just personal preference, right? Like this, like I said, the Stone Glacier, great pack, just wasn't the great fit for me, right? So I find, found a different one that worked better type thing. Um, so... Um, on that note, you know, a classic one is boots, right? Like, um, and they, so they say that like, you know, try a pack, if it fits great, then it's probably a good pack. And the, the problem with packs is you almost need to put some weight into it, right? You can't, you know, you, you throw any pack on with nothing in it, it's going to feel good just cause it is, it feels good. Um, but you have to put a hundred pounds in it or 50 or 60 pounds in it before you go, Oh shit, that's not, that's not feeling very good anymore. So, um, you know, it's kind of that trade-off. And that's one thing with the society where we've talked about doing this, we're still going to do it is we're going to reach out to a bunch of the manufacturers and try and get packs from all of them and uh, maybe do a gear night and throw 50 pounds in each of them and everyone can try them on and see how they fit. Right. So um, just kind of give you an opportunity to see what, what a good fit is. And, and definitely for our convention in Kamloops this year, um, we're going to do our best to make sure that we have that option there. You can come in try the packs and with any luck, maybe we'll get some of the, you know, the retails there that can help you too, because fitting your packs is a big part of it. You know, you look at Mike, who's an experienced backcountry guy, and it wasn't until last year or this year, I guess, that he kind of figured out how to fit his his stone glacier. And he had, you know, had to watch the video. And and same thing with me with my Kafaru. I spent a bunch of time going through watching the video and trying to find a good fit. And and truth be told, maybe that's the issue with my stone glacier. I never had it fit, fitted properly. So, but anyway, on that note, where that's leading to is his boots is another classic example, right? So, um, and I find it interesting, Mike, um, because the first ten years or seven or eight years we hunted together you're always laughing at me and my feet and now I get to do a little bit to you. Right. So, um, you know, I, I ran, um, I ran Hanwags the first couple of years and they feel great. They're great boots, but I was getting blisters and you, you brought up a point to me. You said, hey, well, Kyle, like you probably should find a boot. You should be able to find a boot. That's a good fit. That shouldn't cause blisters. Or maybe it was I, actually, it might've actually been Darren Thompson from, um, Fisher marketing that told me anyway, regardless, somebody mentioned that to me. So I switched from the Hanwags to, I went with Loa's and the Loa's have been a great transition for me. And, and Mike, you've seen it this year, right? Like, uh, I ran 
two weeks straight, not even as much as a, a hot spot, right? Which is phenomenal. Didn't do any doctoring. I've never had that in the mountains before. So I've been, I've been pretty blessed in that regard to figure out, to crack the code there. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Normally your feet, Kyle, it look, just look like hamburger, right? It's obviously a nightmare. Peeling back your sock every day is like a, <laughs> it's, it's like a slow, slowly revealing a horror scene, right? <laughs> See the blisters you have on your feet. So this year was definitely a shock and a success story for you, for sure. However, for me, it was a first because generally um, I don't have a lot of problems with boots and hot spots and, and blisters and such. You know, I've written about them in the past, you know, mitigating hot spots and blisters once once you get them. But uh, I think, uh, well, I'm 52 now and I think a lot large parts of our bodies, you know, even our feet change, you know, as anybody can test you two weeks in the mountains, you get back to the truck and you don't, you're, you don't fit in your sneakers anymore, right? Your feet have swollen or, or shifted. Um, well, Currently, I run the crispy, and I love the boot. You know, I've always run Mendel's in the past. Uh, another great, great boot. But uh, me personally, I didn't seem to get more than about two years out of the boot before it started breaking down. So maybe uh, I, I should have spent more time in the off season taking care of them. I'm not quite sure, but uh, you know, I think it was called the Mountain Hunter. Great, great boots. Awesome. But uh, decided to switch it up a little bit. Tried crispy, and I think this is my third year or second year running them. Uh, the first or year or two. No issues at all. So I know it's not the boot, but uh, I've noticed in my everyday wear as well along my heel, the very back of my heel, I'm getting maybe a little more of a bony spot or maybe I'm just getting skinny feet. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, um, I kind of anticipated a little bit that I I might have issues uh, with my feet, not with the boot, but with my feet. And uh, sure enough, I did. Um, It wasn't with uh, heel slippage or anything. It's strictly the anatomical changes I'm getting in my, my bone structure of my feet. And uh, so where I did make an error was uh, not getting in front of it. So generally speaking, I'm a big fan of if you know there's a problem arising, you know, be proactive as opposed to being reactive. And uh, I let it get to the point of blisters before I did almost anything about it. So, yeah, so I started getting hot spots. And like I said, the the weather was so hot. I'm sure that was a contributing factor. But uh, I, I normally don't get sweaty feet either. And my I mean, you could have wrung our socks out. It was so hot with so much sweat and uh, stopped after four or five hours uh, for our first camp and uh, took my socks off and I already had blisters starting. So that was the first mistake. So um, before I get to my second mistake, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, you know, how we mitigate. Once we, well, prior to getting hot spots, or if you feel one is starting to develop, we're both big fans of duct tape. So what you do is you just get a little bit of duct tape, you cut it and you just put it on that hot spot. And that stops the friction between your sock and your boot and your foot. So hopefully it won't develop uh, or progress beyond a hot spot to blisters. And if you do make a mistake like I did and you didn't uh, stop it before it progressed to the point of blisters, then generally what you do is you can take a bit of medical gauze or me. Um, I'm not quite so concerned about, wrongfully so, about uh, hygiene. <laughs> Um, I use sometimes a gun patch and I'll, I'll cut it and I'll double it up and I'll put it within the duct tape. So you picture about a four inch piece of duct tape with a doubled up gun patch in the middle of it. And if it's on my heel, I, I put a bit of a clip on the top and the bottom of the tape so it doesn't pucker as I wrap it around my heel. So I wrap it around my heel and that's what I ended up doing for the entire trip. And uh, the blisters, they're pretty bad. Um, they didn't get any worse. They didn't uh, progress and didn't cause me any pain at that point. But uh, I shouldn't have let it get to that point. And having said that, one more mistake I did make was I thought if duct tape is good, why would Gorilla Tape be better? Well, 
Absolutely not. It was worse because Gorilla Tape probably has double the adhesiveness of duct tape. So I put it on or left it on for a couple of days. So when I pulled it off, it pulled off a lots of skin surrounding the blister as well. So a blister that was maybe sort of one centimeter in, in diameter but now became like three centimeters in diameter, my whole back of my heel, because I guess it was moist because of the sweating and the Gorilla Tape. And I also and and I always also had the, the beginning of a well, I had a full full on blister, so you had the ragged edges that were easy to pull off. So I made a one centimeter blister turn into three centimeter blisters on both heels. <laughs> but then I was just ultra conservative. Um, so you wear them during the day, and at nighttime you take them off to allow your f- foot to breathe and uh, allow the moisture because you know your, your foot's not breathing, so the moisture build up under the duct tape. So, um, but no, the boots I have no complaints about those boots, and they're they're running strong. They're not leaking. I'm, I'm more than happy with with the crispy boots. They just seem to fit my feet. Yeah, it's interesting too with, uh, you know, you mentioned like your feet halfway through the hunt were a mess. Like, you know, and you were having that yeah. issue with the Gorilla Tape. And literally um, by the, the last day, it was your your heel was completely healed. There, you could not, there was zero evidence of that there'd been a blister. Yeah. It was perfectly healed. Like you wouldn't, it was, it's miraculous how the, the healing quality of the body, you know, in those situations of how quick that rejuvenated. You couldn't believe that it would repair itself in five days like that. Yeah, it was nuts because I know at home it would take much longer than that. But uh, and for the listeners out there, it just wasn't the the superficial blister you get. It was like two or three layers down there. It was it was, it was right to the meat. <laughs> it was pretty gross. Um, but yeah, so as soon as I switched to proper care, it it healed itself. So that seems to be a good system. I, I know, Kyle, you talked about another tape that may be out there that maybe we'll research in the off season. It may do the same thing, but a little more medical orientated. Yeah, Steve, do you know what that is? Uh, is it Tuco tape? Luco tape. Luco tape, that's it. Yeah, Peter Gucci mentioned, and I think you said you'd heard of it. Uh, yeah, Luca or Luco. Yeah, okay. Luco we tape. Gotta, yeah. yeah. You've used that before? It's in my pack to go. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but no, I've right. never used yeah. it. it. It looks skookum. It, uh, it's not overly sticky, but it's, it, like, it's medical stuff, right? So it's... Yeah. Uh, it's what they, they use in physiotherapy and doctor's offices and all that stuff. So, yeah, I'm going to wrap some of that around my water bottle and uh, bring it with me. Where, where do you source that from, Steve? Amazon. It's like 20 bucks okay. to the door. Okay. That's L-U-C-O, is it? I'll, I'll send you a text on the okay, proper perfect. spelling. Excellent. Thank you. Cool. Okay. So, we've kind of hit uh, some of the gear. Uh, rifles, not much there. Not much to talk about. Let's talk about... Uh, Food. Okay. So, um, yeah, one of the issues, so we, we had, um, Brian solutions on, on one of our podcasts. That's a great podcast. Mike, you're super knowledgeable about food. That was actually one of my favorite podcasts, believe it or not, just, uh, hearing about that and, and all the planning that goes into it. Um, and one of the issues we had this year was just even sourcing some of the stuff, right? With COVID and stuff, it was a bit challenging. You ordered really early in the season, but even then you had trouble, um, so we ended up with a lot of oatmeal for breakfast, right? <laughs> exactly. Normally I have a lot more variety from day to day, you know, with the, whether it's scrambled eggs or omelets or a sausage scramble, um, as opposed to the oatmeal. You know, so we have, uh, we buy oatmeal and granola that's uh, freeze dry, but also make our own, um, which gives a good variety. As we know, like in the back country, you definitely don't want to repeat the same meal every day. Um, cause it gets pretty bad and you're less likely to finish your meal and, and have that caloric intake, keep it up. Um, 
Yeah, but uh, we we had we we had a few of our old standbys, you know, especially for dinner. So uh, next mile meals, which uh, is, are great, you know, they're very keto oriented, high amounts of protein, absolutely delicious. Uh, peak refuel, same thing, not so keto oriented, but really really good. They, you know, these freeze dried foods have come so far from the '80s and the '90s where I couldn't even finish one. You know, I just I just dump half of it into the fire, you know, because they all tasted like chili powder and bad noodles. You know, it was just absolutely gross. <laughs> and uh, what's the one we used this year, Kyle? That um, that I think Mike suggested was that the packet. Uh, yeah, packet. Yeah, and they packet were good. Gourmet. I mean, they were. Yeah, packet gourmet. They were excellent. You know, was that the chicken um, one? Uh, oh, I like the pizza one. Yeah, you, uh, should, you showed me some chicken thing. Oh, I know. Uh, I think. I think the chicken one may have been the next mile meals, the, okay. the total keto one. Yeah. 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 Um, so the packet gourmet. So, you know, I tend to make a few errors and I make them every year, but this year, because uh, we're having a little harder time sourcing the meals we wanted to due to COVID, we decided to try packet gourmet due to a great suggestion from, uh, from one of Kyle's friends. Um, but then Kyle passed it on to me because I'm less busy than he is because I'm gainfully unemployed at the moment. Um, I, I know, I didn't really have time or the inclination to do as much research. I kind of took it as, uh, you know, the, the suggestion um, that we should try these and uh, try these meals. They're excellent, great, great uh, flavors. However, I didn't read the fine print and the fine print said, bring tortillas, you know, like, um, and even one you needed to bring another stove with a frying pan to fry up the dough. So there's a lot more steps to it than your average sort of backpacking uh, meals. So, which made a couple meals almost in, in, um, inedible because they were basically dough. You know, you had to fry them. And uh, for obvious uh, reasons, you just don't add water to dough and eat it. Um, and the other ones uh, definitely needed, uh, they were built to be put into a tortilla or something like that, um, which would have been great. They're, unfortunately, tortillas are heavy, but they do have a high uh, calorie count. But I didn't read the fine prints. So we had none of that. So we're having pizzas in a bag and this kind of stuff. So the flavors are there, but just uh, it just wasn't the, the dining experience we should have or could have expected. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I agree with you. Uh, like you said, the, the flavors were good. Um, but yeah, eating that raw dough and we did it twice, right? Uh, yeah. we, we needed the calories, but uh, it was eating literally raw dough. So um, yeah, so I guess that's the the warning. Like packet gourmet, check them out; they're a good product. But just make sure you read the fine print. Some of them you don't need anything with it, and and uh, but a lot of them you do. They recommend like there's one uh, pizza one, and very cool. It's great, but you're supposed to put it on a tortilla and then eat it like that, right? Or t- like a tortilla shell, uh, soft taco type thing. And um, so, uh, so in terms of meals, just a couple things to note: um, peak blows everybody out of the water calorie wise. Um, so sausage and gravy, that's a new one this year and people rave about, and we agree. It was awesome. Mike, you were arm wrestling for me. Uh, was that, uh, I think that was the biscuits and gravy, uh, biscuits and gravy, and so biscuits and sausage gravy. That's, that's what right. it is. Yeah. 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 That's it, yeah. yeah. And 1100 calories. So big, big powerhouse. Uh, yeah. A lot of these meals are five, six, even four fifty, Right. So, you know, the double what a normal meal is. So, you know, really great on the calorie count. Um, but if you look at the transition to um, Next Mile Meals, which is they're out of Colorado, I think, um, really good tasting. But if you if you do a comparison, so the calories are going to be down like that 600 range, five, six, seven hundred. 
but the protein is like 54 grams of protein, right? So whereas if you look at a um, a uh, peak one, they're you know the 30 range type thing. So proteins through the roof on these pa- uh, on these next mile meals, um, and and really good flavor, really good quality. Um, I really enjoyed having them in the bush as well. So um, yeah, definitely both those were fantastic. And we had some mountain house. How was your mountain house, Mike? Well, the mountain house was good. Yeah, they've come a long way, you know. So it, it's it's hard for me because you know it's like uh, growing up in the '80s with the Hyundai cars. You know, they're they're absolutely horrible and they were junk and they're they're built to explode after three years. Even though they're fantastic vehicles now, and they've had one of the best Consumer Report ratings out there, I'd have a hard time buying one because of that. so. You know, growing up with Mountain House and that kind of stuff, Backpackers Pantry, they're great. I'm sure they are. Um, but I think they're made more for the masses, uh, mass produced. So maybe the, the the maybe where they get the calories from isn't quite as good as where Peak Refuel gets it from or Next Mile Meals. Um, so that's why I stick to these ones. Um, you know, just as an example, Kyle, I got a Next Mile Meals in front of me here. It's Buffalo style ranch chicken. It's a single serving and it's 520 calories. However, it has a whopping 57 grams of protein, which is incredible. Wow. And, yeah. and keep in mind, they are delicious. And right beside me here, I got a peak refuel. It's a butternut doll bot. And uh, it uh, comes in as two servings, but the protein is less than half at 23 grams, but has 870 grams of uh, or 870 calories. So I think what it comes down to is variety again, right? You don't always have to eat for calories, but uh, protein as well, because your body is craving both of those. Yeah, uh, it was interesting on this one, um, on this trip, uh, you know, we, we ate a lot of freeze dried and my guts were starting to act up. And I think you mentioned yours were starting to, you were starting to feel a little bit too. I think just so much freeze dried and, you know, you, you, there's really no real food that we're having all, all your foods coming from a bag. So, by the end of it, it was starting to, I never really noticed it before. Um, I'm not sure why it was, but it, you know, it, yeah, as you recall, we were on the mountain and uh, chasing, chasing that big ram that we talked about uh, on our earlier in the podcast and uh, had to take a bathroom break. So it was, uh, it was a bit, <laughs> a bit, a bit nerve wracking to be on the mountain and, and uh, you know, Mike always made fun of one of his hunting partners in previous, in a previous lifetime that had a big moose and, and, uh, kind of uh he he uh yeah he had to go use the bathroom and missed out, out the other opportunity i had visions of that with this ram so anyway we we got things taken care of but you know my stomach was starting to get a little bit queasy by the end of the trip and i think it was just you know too much freeze-dried right two weeks of it so yeah you know the absolute panic in your eyes <laughs> <laughs> i don't think I'll, i will forget that uh, but yeah, yeah no I, I, th- I think any anybody who eats freeze-dried and packaged for two weeks you're gonna have issues at some point or another right that's a huge transition for your body yeah so on that note so a couple things let's uh let's talk about the bio- biological stuff so um you know i've always carried three rolls of toilet paper um you and i both like i i got away with one on this trip um, but we always talked about the emergency emergency planning um with regards to you know if you end up with jardia or some sort of stomach bug but you know now we're so blessed with um the technology right we got steripens we got mm-hmm. and on this trip we're in great shape because all we're in the mountains and where there was really strong creeks everywhere lots of glacier runoff we did steripen some of our stuff uh, but 90% of it, we were able to just get it, source it from the creek and and not have to do anything with it, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, um, you know, I've had Jardy in the past and that's why, you know, 
I'm not nearly as active as you are in the mountains with that requirement, but I've always brought <laughs> two rolls and some wipes. Um, where generally in, in, in two weeks, I'd only go through one roll. You know, maybe I'm too judicious. I don't know. Talk to my uh, my tent mate. But uh, um, yeah, but the other roll I just bring along just in case because that for me, that's an emergency. You know, like uh, maybe it's not a life threatening one, but uh, you know, I've had Giardy before and I've, mm-hmm. you, know, you can go through a roll of toilet paper in a couple hours, right? Yep. So that's one of my emergency pieces. So um it just stays in my in my backpack but uh having said that ever since the new technology like stereo pens it just made it so much easier you know like um to uh treat your water you know in the past you things like uh well, way in the past you know you, we put tablets in and then it, it got around to like a, the sweet water which is a pump and you pump your water through a diaphragm and those are prone to failure but it was it was also slow and, and it took time, you know. So sometimes you look at a stream and you, you might make the decision, you might, you know, weigh the, the cost of clean water as opposed to time and, or you're just tired and you're lazy. So you may not do it, which is what probably happened to me many years ago up north of why I got Jardian. It took many months to get rid of it. But um, now with the SteriPen, it's just so easy. You know, like, you know, sometimes it's a no-brainer. You look at a river and you're like, yeah, nothing needs to be done to that. But with the SteriPen, if, you, if you're getting water from a marginal source and if there's we talk about any doubt and you decide not to treat it it's 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 because you're lazy because it only takes two minutes you pop out your steri pen you put it in the water and you're done in two minutes and, you, and uh, we've never had an issue you know i think it i, I can't know the exact number but it's between 99 or, or 97 and 99 percent of waterborne sort of bugs are killed by this thing i think it just the ultraviolet light disrupts their dna in some form and and kills them yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great piece of kit for sure. So, um, so on that note, one of the things that we sort of were monitoring or keeping an eye on this trip was our fuel usage. So, um, we run the wind burner from MSR, a great product. Um, and Mike and I each have one. We just brought one between the two of us. Um, no redundancy. That's all we brought. And, um, we brought, so two of the large containers, like they're, they're 500 and something. They're the large containers that MSR builds. Um, and there, we brought two. Um, and we kind of, in, in the past, actually, on late season hunts, we've actually brought two plus a small one, right? So anyway, we said, yeah, we're probably good with just two this trip. So of interest, we ran the wind burner. We, we cooked breakfast and dinner every day. So we always had a hot meal and a hot, hot breakfast and a hot dinner. And we had a minimum of two copies coffees each each day so four coffees minimum sometimes we'd have more um and now we didn't have to boil any water um for for bugs we because we could treat everything with steripen or we didn't need to do it um and one container lasted the two of us 12 days in the mountains so we we went in on the 29th came out on well the night of the ninth we still had fuel that night when we had our dinner so it's pretty phenomenal one container is all so next trip we said we'll take one container plus a small one uh we don't need the two big ones it was overkill we never did need that one i think we used it on day 10 or something the big one a a new one right um i can't remember Kyle. i don't i don't actually it was possible at the back of the lake we did but, you know, when I got that second can back, I still had the plastic cap on it. So maybe we didn't. But I think it would have been pretty darn close. Um, and then, like you said, in the future, take one large one and one small one for backup. But it's important to note it it was uh, quite warm as well. Um, so, therefore, the water didn't take as long to bring it to a boil. So, uh, in, that, in that case, and and, and as Kyle, he, he segued between the two with the SteriPen, there's no need to boil your water. So, right there, it's going to save you probably 
200, 300% of your fuel usage, not having to boil your water. So um, yeah, in that regard, it was good. Yeah, definitely one large and one small next time. Yeah, and I think probably more than likely that would work for even a later season hunt as well. The one thing that we did do is when it was windy, we'd kind of go in the vestibule. We had the luxury of the vestibule, and and these are all factors that come into play, right? Like if you have to burn your, you have to boil your your water on the mountain, and it's a twenty knot or thirty knot wind, thirty mile an hour wind, you're going to use a lot more fuel. But we, whenever it was windy, we'd go inside the tent, use the vestibule to protect us, and uh, the water, and it's incredible. Those wind burners are fantastic and, and jet boil is great too i'm not you know i'm not brand specific but the wind burner it was crazy we'd fill that we put a liter of water in for our coffee or uh, just shy of a liter i think and and it, w- it would boil within a minute it was or whatever it's super fast it's incredible how quick it would boil i was every time i was shocked at how quick it would boil yeah. for us. so I, I also think it's important to note to maybe new hunters that uh maybe not eating a lot of freeze-dried as well. So with the exception of the packet gourmet, um, you know, if, if there is ever an issue, if you do run out, it's not an emergency situation. Even if it's a hard noodle that's within your uh, freeze-dried bag, it'll eventually rehydrate. If you put in cold water and you leave it for anywhere from a half hour to maybe even up to three or four hours, it's going to rehydrate. You're just going to have a cold meal instead of a hot meal, but the nutritional content will still be there because you're not, and you don't have to worry about uh, any sort of catching any bugs because it's you're not actually cooking it when you enter that uh, boiling water it's already pre-cooked so you're just a matter of heating it and rehydrating it so and we've kind of been through that like uh, i remember that uh, time we were stone sheep hunting we did that fly in um and we we went up after some rams and we went super lightweight we took the, the sill dome with us um and just some freeze-dried meals but we didn't take a stove or anything and uh, I think we ended up hydrating in the morning for our dinner at night. And like we ate the meals cold and you tried to pick ones without noodles and that sort of stuff that didn't require cooking, but uh, it worked fine. Right. It was, it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't great eating. It wasn't yeah. something you enjoyed, but you certainly were getting the sustenance. Right. So Yeah. Right. It was not definitely not a comfort meal. It was all about the sustenance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So Mike, anything else we're missing in terms of gear or equipment or anything on the trip that you thought of? I know you're going to make some notes. Have you written stuff down or what? I have made some notes. Um, funny enough. So why don't we talk a little bit about gun maintenance? Yeah. In that regard. So I know one of the things that, I mean, I never really use, but, uh, another sort of technique that I've adopted from you, um, just not even as far as maintenance goes, but as, as far as deterrence um, of getting anything into your barrel. It's just a little bit of electrical tape. Uh, I'm a big fan of that, but I never was to begin with. So I invariably I forget every year and Kyle brings a little bit extra for me because he knows I'll forget. But, uh, you know, especially when we're carrying your, your guns um, the way I do and you're strapped to your backpack with the muzzle up, then you're, you're crashing through bush for hours every day. You're always going to get debris in there. So just a little bit of electrical tape, you know, one two inch uh, piece over the top then uh, and then maybe another two inch piece just around the circumference to secure that first piece. And that, that does wonders and saves your barrel from getting moisture in there and all sorts of debris. Um, and then as, as far as uh, the maintenance goes, you know, guns have come a long way. When I first started going up North, they're all wood barrels with, with uh, sorry, sorry, the wood stocks with, with uh, blued barrels. And even the ones, the early generation of stainless steel, you know, they would still get surface tarnish on them. So, if it was region, you know, six, especially in the Northwest and it's horrendous rain, um, 
were having problems with our, our rifles, whether it was the bolt or the barrel rusting. So generally um, in those days, we'd take it apart, bring a little screwdriver with you, take off the, the barrel in the action, and you'd wipe it down uh, with a little bit of oil. So generally, even now, when I go to the back, I'll take a little Ziploc. I'll take maybe 20 gun patches and I'll pre-oil them and I'll take a bunch of Q-tips and I'll pre-oil them as well and bring some dry gun patches. And uh, it's not a gun snake, but it's just a little piece of string with a little weighted end on the, on the bottom of it. And I'll just run that through my barrel every, depending on the weather. If it's nice weather and there's no rain, maybe once a week, but if it's raining every day, I'll do it every two or three days. I'll, I'll run it down the barrel and then I'll, I'll take out the bolts and uh, you'll be surprised how much dust and debris you get in there when you're hiking through. So with the Q-tips allows you to get right into the little nooks and crannies of your action and your bolt and get all that debris out. And then I just uh, take a couple of uh, pre-oil patches and I just run my on my finger and I run it within the action and, and try to get into the breach and stuff and all oil it. And w one of the things I've, I've learned in the past, which people may, new people may make a mistake, if you go into your tent at night and it's high humidity and you're wet and your gun's wet and you just place it on the bathtub bottom, you're probably going to get rust or surface rust on, even on your stainless steel rifle. So what I generally try to do is I try to dry it off a little bit, whether it's a sock or a t-shirt, and then I place up, I create a barrier between the rifle and the bathtub bottom on the tent. So I'll put my jacket down or stuff sacks and I'll place my rifle on top of that because Kyle and I, we both had that issue with, uh, I wouldn't say high-end rifles, but moderately high price rifles and uh I, maybe the the highest end top level rifles you wouldn't have that issue but i've never been able to afford those rifles so um that's kind of what i do for my for my rifle what do you think kyle can you add anything to that no i think you i think you got it um yeah no and yeah i yeah perfect um i know one thing we wanted to talk about i'm not sure how we're doing for time kyle but we wanted to talk about uh crossing streams yeah Let's let's go there for sure. Okay. Did you want to start off? Because well, I can tell you that we've almost died several times, so that's that's the good segue there. <laughs> but uh, um, you know, yeah, no, for sure, it's it's definitely a challenge, and and certainly if you're going to hunt in the backcountry, you got to find out. Um, first of all, I think a big part of it is is just research ahead of time, right? Like find out where you're going and where you need to get going. If you can't get across a river, you don't think you can get across a river and you don't have any evidence um, that you can, um, you might, you know, it, that can be the difference of whether or not you can hunt in that area, right? So there might be an area you're really keen on getting to, but if you can't cross that river, um, you know, you're, you're wasting your, your time and, and energy, right? So, um, you know, and, and it's funny, the river, it's not linear either, right? You can look at a tiny little stream and you think, oh, there's no problem, and it's not that deep. Um, but if it's a very forceful glacier, you know, you might be in a, a situation where you can't get across it. Um, and we, 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 on our doll sheep hunt, we experienced that, right? We had the uh, fortitude of someone telling us, bring a little raft with you and or a little uh, inflatable. And that's how we got across. We would have never crossed that stream if we didn't have that inflatable, I don't think. So, um, you know, it allowed us to get across there. So, um, but, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, we were doing these stream crossings on our trip and we said, you know, uh, we need to talk about this because it, it, it's probably one of the most dangerous things. I think other than exposure, that's probably one of the most dangerous things we do in the backcountry, right? So um, anyway, over to you, Mike. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess one particular thing to note is not only from year to year uh, or season to season, but also week to week and day to day, that, that stream 
uh, will vary. You know, it, many sort of environmental factors will contribute to it. You know, the, the amount of rain that particular day, the amount of rain over the previous week, you know, how sunny it is, it's going to affect the, uh, the glaciers and the snowpack, how much uh, water they're both releasing. So um, we've gone to one particular area, we've hiked in off a highway, and uh, some years it's benign. It's just nothing. You don't even think about it. It's just little over your ankles. And then you come back another year, and we were there during a few years back when there was a, almost rains of biblical proportions and it was downright scary it was unbelievable you know so um this one particular stream its grade is such that anything over your knees is is dangerous i don't know what it's doing but it's 15 20 miles an hour or something it's crazy so um yeah so we went in it was benign and we came out and we made the the typical error that many young pilots have made in the past is you know the get home itis we put that in front of our own personal safety and either one of us, we could have, you know, it would have been ugly. I don't, I, I don't want to prophesize what would have happened, but if either one of us lost our footing on that, it would have been super ugly. And it was an error. We should just camp by the stream for a day or two, wait for those water levels to drop and then attempted to go across. But uh, it was, it was to the point, you know, where uh, once you committed, you're a few feet from shore, you couldn't even turn around, you know, in order to put the pole, where you wanted it to go, you had to aim it two feet upstream because even if you jabbed it down, by the time it went to the water and you locked it in, and then even then it was, I don't know what the frequency was, but it looked like it was 2000 RPM, the way those poles were vibrating so fast. So um, so important piece of information, I think for crossing a stream is bring Crocs, you know, because if you don't, and it's a glacier fed stream, it's gonna feel like someone's hitting your toes with a ball peen hammer, mm -hmm. right? And uh, you, you're just gonna wanna curl up in a ball. <laughs> um poles extremely important you know even if you only bring one pair between you and your partner hopefully you can get them across the stream you can shuttle them across because uh i think most of the streams we've crossed you know after a significant rain we never would have made it without poles it's just too dangerous um so I, it, it's hard to say it, it's not a one-size-fits-all type of thing for for judging a stream um it's one particular stream, depending on the grade, you can be up to your chest, as we all know, slow moving waters. I've done it before. I held my pack above my head, been up to my chest, walk across it, no problem. Other streams, you know, anything above your knee is absolutely treacherous, mm -hmm. you know, and shouldn't be attempted. So I think it's a personal thing. You, you go in there um, and you look what it's like. It's experience, you know, and I wouldn't suggest to anybody, you know, like, you know, new hunters attempting a raging stream on their own without any kind of experienced hunter helping them along the way. Because that's one of the things you don't want to learn by experience if you can help mm -hmm. it, <laughs> you know, because, uh, you know, we've, you know, there's uh, previous to Kyle, I used to hunt with another guy and uh, we were up in the West of Shoddy and uh, there had been another hunter up there who came to his end, apparently trying to cross the stream. So that's a perfect example. And, you know, they mobilized all hands and, you know, mm -hmm. like Urs from uh, up there in uh, Muncho, uh, he was searching around and putting the word out, looking for the sky, but it turned out it was a stream crossing that uh, that did him in. So um, so that's the, the dangerous part and things to look out for. And uh, I'm by far an expert. There's a lot more, you know, experienced mountaineers that I would... Uh, I would talk to, you know, they, they can actually, I won't talk techniques, you know, Kyle and I, we develop a few that work for us, but uh, I think it's more important to talk to people with experience, you know, or read books or gather sources mm -hmm. of information um, beyond us. Um, so the easy part of crossing, if it's an easy part, you know, like uh, it slows you down. So the first thing is, you know, you, you budgeted time. It's going to take four hours from get to a, a to B, but if there's three or four stream crossings, I think we budget an extra 20 minutes per stream crossing. So, one of the ways you can sort of mitigate, I think, uh, trouble um, 
is, is look up and down the stream. Is there a place where it braids? You know, so if a, if a place that braids and you can walk from island to island, you know, it's going to reduce the overall flow and force, you know, who knows, 20, 40, 60%. So take your time, look up and down the stream and look for a place where it braids. Um, some people will even think if they don't have a lot of experience in, with water, it's like they'll find a narrow section. But people don't realize, you know, that's just concentrating the force, right? Mm-hmm. It's making it deeper and faster kind of interior effect. So sometimes it's better to look for a wider area where the actual stream or the river is at, at its widest point. And therefore, its force is distributed over a, a greater distance. So that's what we look for is wide area and it's braided. Um, and a lot of times you can see the ripples, what it's doing. You can, it will give you a good indication of what's, what's below. Um so what we generally do is we, we take our Crocs and we gear down to our underwear, um, take your boots off, we secure them through a pack, make sure they're secure good because if you if they fall off in that stream, they are gone. You're never getting them back. Um, so we secure them well, secure our pants well, and uh, put on our, our Crocs and then we, we make our way across. And depending on the flow, uh, it depends on how far, how long it takes us to get across. But one thing I found works really well is when you get to the other side, now your feet are wet. So if it's hot and you're already developing uh, blisters or hot spots, the last thing you want is is uh, wet feet to put back in your socks. So generally, just carry I carry like a little chamois kind of towel towel or something. Keep that in the lid of your pack or something like that, or somewhere that's accessible. Then you can dry your feet off, put your socks on, and away you go. So that's pretty much all I have to add for stream crossings. How about you, Kyle? Yeah, just uh, worthy of note that if you're on an outfitter trail, lots of times it'll be a horse trail or maybe even a game trail, um, you know, you might not necessarily have to cross. And, you know, do your due diligence. So make sure you look down the trail if you can. And uh, there's been many times where we've crossed and then you go 30 feet and you're crossing back and you could have just busted brush for 30 feet. You know, the outfitter, they're just going to ride their horse trail through there and they're not too worried about crossing a stream on a horse. But uh, for someone like us that's having to take your Crocs off. And the worst thing is you take your Crocs off, you or you, you take your boots off, put your Crocs in, you cross, you get all your gear back on, and then you go 200 meters up the trail, and then you're crossing again. It's just, you just it's soul-destroying when you're exhausted. <laughs> so, um, and we ran into that on this trip, right? We, uh, you know, we had a good look, and and you kind of said, well, let's, let's go a little further. And sure enough, we went 300 meters up, and it crossed back, and we didn't have to do it. But then there's other times it's obvious. You look, there's a rock face there or a cliff and you're like, well, there's no way around that. So we're going to have to cross here. So, um, yeah, so just, you know, the one, th- and, and that kind of leads us to the next one, I guess, is just doing a really good reconnaissance. Like if you're on a horse trail or an outfitter trail, there's a reason the outfitters are using that trail. Um, it's cause it's the best route and we've done it. We've fallen into that trap several times where we are like, Oh, Hey, let's just, uh, there's a shortcut. Let's take the shortcut. Um, almost never is that the right call. So, um, yeah, and we've learned that the hard way many times and, you know, be, me being inexperienced in the mountains, I've talked Mike into it a few times, like, Hey, let's go do this. Let's go take this. It, it, it's going to be quicker. And then afterwards you regret it every time. Um, and if you're, if you're busting brush and you're in your horse trail and you lose it, um, and there, you know, there's a horse trail there, go back and find it. And we did that. I think that on this trip, we did that. Well, Mike, there were several times we lost the trail and we just said, okay, drop the packs, go find the trail. We found the trail and we got back on it. And it took you 10 minutes to find the trail, but you saved an hour of busting brush doing that. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah. I think it's about being smart. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, like the horse trails in this particular area are very distinct when they're going through the spruce trees. But as soon as it gets into the open areas of willow trees, um, 
those are generally indications of that there's been a slide that year or it's a repetitive slides every year and it's usually marshy on the bottom so the trails just get obliterated uh, every time the pack train comes through every season they just make a new trail so we were first in there this year there been obviously no uh no outfitters in for a couple of years so yeah we'd get to an area and it'd be have to transit four or five hundred meters um through this open area to get to the trees again and we'd invariably lose the trail so yeah we were very disciplined you know we didn't talk ourselves into taking shortcuts or hoping for the best we just dropped our packs battled the bugs for a few more minutes and then we found the trails then we started up our journey again so i think if, if anything from this podcast i think uh lesson learned and relearned every year is find the trails whatever it takes you know and stay on the trail stay on it stay on it because those those trails in the mountains not only are they going to make your life easier but they're leading somewhere you know if you're following those horse trails in the mountains the outfitters are following those horse trails into the mountains because there's rams there so find the outfitter camps you know the, the spike camps and stuff not all not all horse trails lead to rams but a lot of them do so stay on those trails yeah great advice all right. Well, I think we've hit a lot of points today. Um, there's more we could talk about, but I think uh, we could wrap this one up and uh, we'll, we'll definitely be splitting this one into two. But uh, I think we've done a pretty good job of hitting some of the major points on gear and some of the tips and tricks. And, uh, you know, and uh, appreciate you taking the time, uh, Mike, to sit down with us and, and share your experience. I know that I, every time I'm in the mountains, I learn new stuff from you and I've been hunting with you for, you know, better part of a decade and a half. But uh, that 30 years of mountain experience has come in, uh, you know, there's a lot of wealth and knowledge there. So I appreciate you sharing with us what you, what you learned. Well, thanks, Kyle. Yeah, I enjoy, I, as you know me well, I enjoy talking, so it's not a burden at all. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, I, uh, I'm pretty stoked, man. Like, I uh, can't wait to hear how your, your caribou slash sheep slash goat hunt goes this fall. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you, you know, you've, you've kind of been, uh, become a, uh, you know, a disciple, if you will, just taking all this in and you, You've you've had so many different uh, uh, mentors, I guess, on the on the podcast here, right? And mm -hmm. I, I was just commenting to Mike about this. You know, like Steve's got all these these great guys that have come on and girls that have got so much experience in the mountains, and and you've got to to glean all this information from them. Now you get to put it to use. So we're pretty envious of that first trip for you. So. Oh yeah, it's not like I'm not taking notes. <laughs> awesome. So anyway, um, appreciate your time, Mike, and uh, yeah, another great sheep season in the books and hopefully one of these years we kill a ram again <laughs> <laughs> thanks kyle no i enjoyed uh i enjoyed hanging out today and to look forward to another podcast in the near future sounds great good good times take care guys